Hi, I'm Rob Jepson, and my mission is to help sales leaders everywhere create record-setting growth in the companies they lead. I'm here to share the secrets of the world's most successful sales leaders. I don't care how big the company or how big the team, we showcase sales leaders that are taking what the market gives and then some. We feature leaders and teams that are beating their markets, winning at crazy rates, and doing it predictably and sustainably. The Sales Leadership Podcast is brought to you by Xvoyant, the one-on-one sales improvement platform that's transforming how high-growth sales leaders use Salesforce around the world. If you're one of the 97% of the sales leaders that have a sales process but don't have a structured one-on-one coaching process, check out Xvoyant today. The Exvoyant team will show you how your one-on-ones with each rep will drive purpose-driven activities in a way that will create new normals and impact your organization almost immediately. If you don't have a plan on how you can help every single rep on your team improve by at least 10%, Exvoyant can help you create a sales dynasty faster than you ever thought possible. We're excited to announce the release of the Exvoyant Sales Leadership eBook. This book features secrets of some of the world's greatest sales leaders. You'll be introduced to coaching tactics, the building blocks of high growth, and other insights you can apply to help how you lead your team. This book is free, no strings attached. So head to exvoyant.com, download the book, read it, and share it today. Now, get ready for some serious insights from sales leaders that are making it happen. And remember, don't worry, we got you. Hello and welcome to the Sales Leadership Podcast, where high-growth sales leaders share high-growth practices and tactics. Today, we are joined by Sam Jacobs, founder of Revenue Collective. Revenue Collective offers strategic CRO consulting practice, helping early and mid-stage companies scale more effectively. Revenue Collective is an exclusive community for commercial operators at growth companies with official chapters in New York, London, Toronto, Denver, Boston, and Amsterdam. With over 200, 200 members and growing, Revenue Collective is a private membership focused on helping its members achieve their career goals. I'm excited to have Sam share more about this in our conversation today. Sam is also the host of the Sales Hacker Podcast. A longtime CRO and a commercial operator in the New York City area, having helped build Gerson Lehrman Group, Axial, Livestream, The Muse, and Behavox. I am so excited to have Sam join us today. Sam, welcome to our show and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rob. I am equally excited to be here. Well, I, uh, I'm a fan of your show, obviously. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Sales Hacker Podcast. I think that you do great work for our community. I'm also a fan of what you're doing, and I cannot wait to learn more about Revenue Collective and how you help sales leaders. Um, but to start this off, can you just share with our listeners, can you just introduce us to Revenue Collective and, and how you got there? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as you mentioned, um, Revenue Collective is its a membership organization focused, and it's not just on sales. We call them commercial operators at growth companies. So that means cool. sales, marketing, operations, customer success. Uh, we are a community focused on helping each of our members achieve their career goals, and it is for executives. So it's for people that have achieved a VP level title or above, but it's also not for CEOs, investors, or founders. So it's not for um, the people that run the company. And it's not for the people that are sort of below the VP level. It is for the executive level of commercial operators. We started in New York in 2016, officially, unofficially in 2012, 2013. And it started basically as just a dinner club, but it's evolved to become much more than that. 
And we're officially in uh, the six cities that you mentioned, Denver, Boston, London, Toronto, and Amsterdam. We have remote members um, from all over the world. Uh, we have people from Houston and from New Orleans and from Calgary and from Milan. So we have people from all over the world that aren't in official chapters. But as we get to critical mass in those cities, we, we consider opening a chapter. And, um, and we come together. And the purpose of the group, why do we do it? It's not just for best practice sharing. So one of the points that I, I make, um, we, uh, you know, there's a lot of places where you can go to figure out, you know, how should I run my sales kickoff? And uh, how should I integrate Salesforce with Marketo? Revenue Collective, you can get those questions answered. But really, it's about your career as an individual. The, um, the average tenure for a commercial operator uh, at high growth company has now fallen below 18 months. The most recent number I've seen is 16 months. And so it's an incredibly volatile time. It's even a, some might say a dangerous time to be a commercial executive. And there are so many expectations. And so we create an infrastructure to help you get better at your job. But also if you need to, to find a new job, we have a whole framework for how to negotiate more effectively so that you can get the right compensation package with the job that you have. Mm-hmm. And then we're also trying to help you find consulting and advisory and board opportunities, sort of uh, additional revenue streams and additional income opportunities for our members so that their day job is not their only source of income. That's a awesome, awesome gap that you're filling. I, I can't wait to dive into this, especially you set the table. You gave me a, a softball pitch there, man. You know I can't stay from away, away from that 16-month stat. We're gonna, you and me are gonna talk about that for a while in this conversation. I'm happy to, yeah. yeah. But a little bit more about you, though. I mean, I, you've got a killer background. So one, you know, one of our customers is GLG. I'm a big fan of of that company, and some of these other ones that you've been with, you've worked with some iconic companies, Sam. You, you've you've got a killer background with high-growth companies that are very successful. Can you just share a little bit about what drew you to sales and Maybe uh, a little bit about your personal story. Our guests always—I mean, our, our listeners always love hearing that from our guests. Absolutely, yeah. I—I um, I mean, uh, way back when I grew up overseas, my parents were in the foreign service. Everyone thinks that's code for CIA. They were not in the CIA. Um, <laughs> I went to a UVA undergrad. I came out of school. It was the dot-com boom. I moved up to New York for a year to do investment banking. Left to start a record label. Terrible idea. Uh, and I can talk about that some what other. What kind of music were you guys doing? That, now that's super interesting. We were a regional artist incubator. So there's all these internet incubators back then. And I said, okay, I'm going to move down back to Charlotte. All of this was wish fulfillment for me wanting to go back to college. So I moved back to Charlottesville, Virginia and said, we're going to own the mid Atlantic and I'm going to sign up every kind of band and I'm not going to have a genre focus. I'm going to have a regional focus. I like and then it. when a band comes in through the mid Atlantic, through Charlottesville, DC, Philly, uh, you know, Richmond, uh, I, they're going to have to go through me. That was the, the, the concept. It didn't really work out that way, but that was the idea. <laughs> um, and then things got started at Gerson Lemmer Group. I moved back there in 2003 through a friend, uh, Jim Sharp. And um, that company was at about $25 million in, in run rate revenue at the time that I joined. And by the time I left in 2010, we were just shy of $300 million. Uh, this year, wow. they're going to do, you know, more than 2x that. Incredibly profitable. It's an awesome um, company. I love what GLG is doing. It's, it's a, it, and it's an incredible business model and, yeah. uh, and just a, a, an incredible bunch of operators. And, um, and it was an incredible success story. However, um, you know, as often happens for people, at least it happened for me, it was so successful and it kind of sucks you up. And pretty soon, you know, you've got like these big titles and big responsibilities probably before you're uh, exactly qualified for them. But at that time in GLG's growth, now it's not like that at all. But at that time, there wasn't a tremendous amount of investment in professional development. 
And it was also like the dawn of SaaS and there weren't words for my job. And what my job was today, if, if we look back on what I did, uh, you know, now it would probably be called like VP of customer success. So I was running uh, the research management team and that team is the client service people responsible for delivering the product and delivering the experience back to the customers. I did not own a P&L and I wasn't in sales. And so I came out of GLG and um, I'd helped that company grow and I wanted to, but I realized that uh, I didn't have a, a, a functional competency. People would say, what did you do? I would say I was the head of research management. They would say, what does that mean? I would say, yeah, I don't really know, but I managed a, big, a bunch of people all over the world. <laughs> and so I realized if you look at a software company, um, there's really, there's two primary functions at a software company. You either build it or you sell it. Yep. And so I, uh, I'd always been, I'd always had intuitive sales experience, but I realized, no, I needed to build myself into a VP of sales because, um, that was where, that was the path to executive leadership. And if you, again, if you're not going to build it, then you need to know how to sell it. And so at Axial, that was sort of my first crash course in helping build up that organization. It was, uh, we call it post revenue, you know, so I joined when it was not quite zero, but, uh, but just north of that. And we helped grow it to about, you know, 10 to 12 million in ARR, uh, over the four and a half, five years that I was there. And awesome. then from there, I went on to leadership positions at Livestream, The Muse and Behavox. Uh, so all that time, um, you know, the reason Revenue Collective exists throughout my career, you know, I worked at jail. I mean, I'm a poster child and maybe it's because I'm, frankly difficult to get along with. Um, I'm sure that <laughs> but I, I worked at GLG for seven and a half years. I worked at Axial for four and a half years. I worked at Livestream for two years, The Muse for nine months and Behavox for 10 months. So you can see that even in my career, uh, you know, my average tenure was shrinking every single time. Now, again, I think I'm sure that's a function of me, but I also think it's a function of the ecosystem and the environment. And so, you know, a, probably as I mentioned about three years ago, officially, uh, we put together Revenue Collective to help help bridge that gap and help fill that gap so that we can help people either do better at their jobs, but also um, share best practices and share insights as as the world is changing so rapidly. The world, you know, the world, the art of sales, the discipline of sales, the science of sales, the science of marketing, even more so than sales, is rapidly evolving. Yep. And so, and especially in New York, you know, there's a big difference between New York and the Bay Area. Bay Area has SAP, the Bay Area has Oracle, Bay Area has Salesforce.com. There are classic enterprise sales companies that have been around for a long time that train the next, the future generation. If, you know, I have on my podcast, every single, not every person, but many of them have, you know, oh, I spent eight years at Oracle and, uh, and Oracle is just an incredible place to learn the craft of enterprise sales. Uh, uh, New York doesn't have those same uh, that, that, those same types of companies. And so when we're all, but we're all good salespeople as commercial leaders, right? Yeah. So we're great at getting the job, but how do you keep the job? And that's why we created Revenue Collective so that, because, you know, if you just spent six months selling your, the CEO as to why you're so great, doesn't really do good one month in to say, well, I've never really built a channel strategy before and I don't really know how to do it. So can you help me? <laughs> I thought I hired you to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, therein lies the rub, right? I get exactly, it. exactly. So, what a great um, story! I love it. Yeah, thank you for thank sharing you. that. No, absolutely, fantastic story. And, and I love the dilemma. I love, you know, I never thought about that. You're right. I mean, New York is loaded with some iconic companies, but you're right that enterprise sales, for example, that there's certainly better places to learn it than others. I get yeah. it. I mean, New York's great for media. New York's great for advertising, and obviously, if you want to Finance. be a banker, yeah. like there's no other place to go. But if you want to be an enterprise software sales leader, 
we have companies now like maybe a MongoDB, but honestly, there's no better training than the Bay Area. And that's why we created Revenue Collective in New York is to help uh, offset that, that, uh, that experience gap. All right. So let's get into this because I think that you are onto something big. I, I've seen it, man. It used to be 24 months just a few years ago and it's, it is falling. I mean, commercial operators, I like how you look at it as commercial operators. I mean, our show is about sales leaders, but commercial operators is a better lens to look through probably. It's falling, man. And, and, um, and it's falling relatively quickly. Um, you started to allude to some of the things that are making that happen. Can you start to dive into that? I mean, we got a lot of sales leaders that are listening to this right now. I'm sure they're aware of this stat. What's driving it and what are some things that our leaders that are listening to the show should be thinking about to make sure that they thrive in spite of this? So um, here you go, Rob. Are you ready? Hit me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm buckled up, man. All right. So strap in for a heady intellectual ride. Um, I think that the real root cause is the lack of growth in the equity markets over the last 30 years. And so what does that have to do with why a, a VP of sales at a startup is getting fired more often? The reason is because if there's a, capital is globalized, right? There's lot, there's tons and tons of money, especially as China, India, um, the Middle East come online and they have more places to put their money than just their oil wells. And so uh, they have lots and lots of money. But if you look at equity markets, yes, since 2008, 2009, the stock market's been a great performer. But if you go back all the way to the original dot-com boom, on a compound annual growth rate, it, it hasn't, it's been, you know, I think slightly below the traditional historical uh, rate of equity returns. So what does that mean? That means that there's too much money and it can't find returns in the, in the publicly traded market. So the money goes into private companies and earlier stage companies because that's the only place where you can get the big returns. So all of a sudden there's a tremendous amount of money. And as we've all seen, you know, SoftBank, the vision fund, like raising, you know, hundreds and hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in capital. So there's tons of money, but not enough good companies. So all of the VCs are flush with capital to invest and they have a, you know, and then we find, and then we, we are at the mercy of the VC business model, but there are too many VCs and too much money. So they're pouring money into startups and there are incredible expectations around growth. And, uh, you know, the way that the business models of VCs work is, you know, two, one to two companies pay for the fund, three to four are what they might call like zombie. They just continue to exist, but never have an exit and never go out of business. And then a bunch fail. And um, those dynamics at a much broader scale, I think, are the things that, if I'm thinking about it, are driving down the average tenure because founders are starting companies. You know, founder, there are more founders than there ever have been, and uh, and they don't have experience building sales and marketing organizations, and they have a tremendous amount of pressure, and a lot of the feedback they're getting is from the VCs. And so the first part of it is there's too much money and not enough good companies, and then the second part is that uh, I think, you know, with some exceptions – most VCs don't really have actual operating experience. And so they're, the muscle memory is really around like the few good companies that they have, which is typically not a statistically significant sample size. At any rate, the feedback, if you read the blogs, if you read like the thought leaders, and there are incredible people out there, but a lot of what they focus on is, <laughs> is firing people. The, mm -hmm. the, you know, is she the zero to 10 person or the 10 to 30 person? Is she the 10 to 30 or the 30 to 100? Yeah. Yeah, All yeah. of that, what you're really saying is, and, and that's one. Second thing they say is, you know, you've got to make the tough calls. They're always whispering that in the founder's ears. And the founder doesn't have a lot of, you know, many times, multiple uh, serial entrepreneurs and serial founders with multiple exits. You'll see that I, in my experience, their executive team lasts longer 
And that's because they understand that like they don't have to take every single piece of advice. A lot of VC, a lot of the invest, a lot of the advice that founders are getting is, is implicitly you're too nice. You have to be tough and you have to make tough calls. And that means firing people. And so like, there's this whole construct where founders feel like there's just, if, if something's not working out, they got to, you know, fire, fail fast, right? Like make yep. that call quickly. Yep. yep. And so, um, I think that's like the broad context. And what happens is you get in and even though, you know, and if you, it just, if you have a, let's say you have a 12 to 18 month sales cycle as an enterprise sales leader, it doesn't even make sense that you'd only work somewhere for nine months because you're only there through half of the sales cycle. Even if you were implementing whatever your new methodology or your new processes, the day you're hired, it doesn't make sense that you would be evaluated anytime earlier than about two years. But um, but people feel like they need to make these decisions um, more quickly. Uh, they don't have the time. There's a tremendous amount of pressure. They're getting a lot of pressure from their investors. And they don't have the life experience to say, you know what, I appreciate the pressure, but I'm going to build the company in the right way, and this is, how, this is not how I want to build the company. I think those are like a lot of the broad symptoms. And so, you know, my consulting business, when I was consulting a year ago, almost all of my consulting projects were uh, companies where they had just fired their VP of sales. And they needed a, an interim VP of sales. And in one of those cases, the person had just, they, they, oftentimes they're spending more time recruiting the exec, the commercial leader than they are letting them uh, run their playbook and build out their process and their go to market strategy within the company. So I, you know, I spent, um, there was a, there was a CRO that, that I was serving as the interim VP because they had just left. And that person lived on the West Coast and had just moved their entire family from LA to New York. And I'm sure that recruiting process was six months and they lasted three months. And, you know, it's just, um, that's a, that has a big personal impact on people. Like that's not, you, you know, you're taking your kids out of school. You're pitching your spouse on a brand new city where maybe they have a job. There's a lot of life disruption that happens. And, and so that is why, that's why we're doing what we're doing, which is trying to help individual commercial operators offset that. So I got a couple questions because you're looking at this closer than anybody that I know. That's I'm super excited to have you on because your perspective is going to be really unique in this regard. Help me understand a little bit more as you've drilled into it because you 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 clearly have a lot of people that you're working with. You've probably been introduced to lots of companies, as you said, that are you know maybe recruiting more than they're doing operating. How often do you see? Let me start with this. Is it you mentioned inexperienced CEOs? Do younger companies, are they more volatile than if you're more experienced or is it pretty volatile with mature companies versus younger companies? Do you see a difference between the two? Yeah, of course. I mean, I would certainly say that the earlier stage company, which is understandable, right? You're yeah. not, uh, the, the earlier you are, the younger you are, the more volatility there's going to be because especially, and there's a bunch of other dynamics at play, but especially because, you know, um, I, I, you know, I, I love him and Saster's amazing, but like he, the, some of the things that, that are being pushed out into the atmosphere around some of these ideas are, are kind of dangerous. And one of them, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, Lumpkin was saying like zero to one is impossible, but one to a, but then once you get to a million ARR, everything else is like inevitable. And I, I, that is just, uh, I'm oh. modified that. Yeah. That's not true. Uh, yeah. the, the reality is that through any, I think you, or I mean, obviously you can Rob, cause you're, uh, you're the man, you're incredible. Um, or the human, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, just but ask that, me, I'll tell you, right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that me and most of my friends, uh, and, and folks like you, uh, can get pretty much any company given a couple years and enough capital, of course, 
to between five to eight million in ARR. Yeah, I would say that there's, that's not that big of a stretch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because, because early, there's enough early adopters typically out there that, um, that will buy something that you, and you know, and, and there's, you're typically solving some kind of need where there's something interesting happening. The real challenge in my experience is getting from around 8 million in ARR past 20. And the way I judge companies typically is how quickly they breach through 20. Was it, did it take five years or was it, you know, uh, was it six to 30 in a year? And obviously that tells you that they're onto something. Um, and so, uh, so what happens is you get, you get some early traction and you're convinced. I just think that the capital, again, you're raising these massive seeds, these massive series A rounds, and you really haven't proved what you're supposed to have proved. Series B is supposed to be the point at which you're scaling. I, I thought, you know, you raise it like a $30 million B, you're supposed to be ready to go. And many, many companies, when you go into the B, they're, they're not really ready to go. The churn's a problem. They over, you know, they over, uh, sold a lot of the market. The product isn't there to back it up. Maybe the market's not ready. And they've built and they've hired in a big sales and revenue organization, go to market organization. And the product's just not there yet. And that is when a lot of the damage happens. When you think that you've achieved product market fit, and I've written about this in the past, you, um, because you can get to, you know, one to three to four million in ARR on pretty good, right? But you can't build a hundred million dollar business on pretty good. It has to be great. And that is, that's where things fall apart. So let's talk about that scenario. So I got another scenario that we're going to shift to. So for our listeners that are in this world, younger company, series A, maybe getting series B in a sales leadership, but maybe you're the CRO, maybe you're a sales manager, whatever. What are some things, like you said, you can't be pretty good. You got to be great. What are some things that you, you would advise our listeners? These are things you want to be great at if you're in this world right now. So if you're a commercial operator and you don't build the thing, right? You're not technical. Probably, and this sounds, uh, silly, but, or I don't know how it sounds. The number one thing you have to be great at is picking great companies. That is like the number one thing in your career. If you don't know how to evaluate a company or pick a company, you're just going to keep banging your head against the wall. Hmm. And, um, that now there are other leadership skills and sales skills and, you know, management skills and, uh, how to get along with other executives, which is frankly something I'm not super, <laughs> I'm not super good at. <laughs> Why I work for myself now. Uh, but, uh, but I think when I look at the people whose careers I, I most admire, I'll give you a specific example. Um, there's a guy that I, you know, they don't call him CRO, but he's basically running, I think he's CRO essentially for WeWork. His name's Nick Warswick. Okay. Uh, he's a, a good friend of mine and a mentor. And if you look at his, his career, he worked at Intralinks, which had multiple, you know, liquidity events. Uh, then he went to Bullhorn. That company was sold in four years. He then went to Grubhub. That company IPO'd while he was there. And then he went to WeWork and now he runs all of growth for WeWork. And so he is exceptional. Now I also think he's a great executive uh, and I also think he's a great commercial leader, but the number one fundamental skill he has is understanding how to evaluate businesses and being just like in, uh, in poker, being willing to fold and being willing to say, you know what, that job is, it's just not the right company and I'm not going to take that job. And frankly, I'm an impatient person and I'm not as good. I'm not nearly in the league that he is in at doing the very thing I'm advising because I've picked some not great companies. So, so then I like that. I want to keep going. I love this, Sam. I, I love when I get guests that have a lot of depth like you have so we can just keep going a layer deeper and a layer deeper. So with that in mind, I got to think there's a few red flags that would jump out. I mean, so if you're going to be great at picking a winner, you know, market fit, 
I mean, you can't do a lot of, if there's not a great market, there's not a great market. All the salesmanship in the world is not going to fix a shitty market. Damn um, right. Besides that, I mean, is that number one? Is there something else? I mean, leadership that you work with. I mean, you, what, what are the top things? Like if you're going to say, what's thing one, two, and three, what are those like maybe top two or three things that they should be looking at? So the number one thing you, you said is exactly right, Rob, and that is the market size. The size, I mean, it sound, I sound like a VC, you know, what's the TAM? But it is true. I cannot tell you how true it is. And the problem is, you know, again, the, the, the problem with most folklore and most narratives around uh, startups is that they are designed to convince people to start companies because that is how VCs make money, right? So they're all designed around, well, Steve Jobs thought everybody was wrong too. It's like, well, this isn't. And some, and then the guy that was wrong also thought everybody was wrong, and he just ended up failing and getting fired. So, <laughs> I love that. It's really well said, Sam. You know, like uh, people are like you know failure. Uh, you know, fail. Many people, you know, so and so failed fifty times before they succeeded. Okay, you're picking one person, and then also many people that failed also failed all the time. Right. So, um, first of all, the market size, and I say that because people say, no, you cannot. I think I've seen multiple times where great founders innovated and built a bigger market than would have expected. Okay, sure, that's possible and that happens. But a big market is the most important thing, and there's reasons for it. So I'll tell you what's the counterexample. I worked at a company called Axial. It's a great company, amazing company, and it does a credible service because what it does is it helps non-venture-backed private businesses find capital and find money. And it connects you know, lower middle market private equity and lenders to small family-owned businesses. That's super important. But when it comes down to it, the products, when we were there, maybe they've shifted the business model, but when we were there, we were selling to lower middle market private equity firms. We were selling a SaaS solution and essentially a lead gen solution to lower middle market private equity firms. Well, there's not enough of those to build a big business. There are just not. There are not. And so what happens is you burn the whole database with like the wrong messaging or you burn the whole bit. You know, we got them all to sign up. They just didn't stay because the product wasn't quite there at that point. And so, um, so that's, what happens the reason a big market is so important is because it allows you to fail it allows you to iterate it allows you to test messaging it allows you to do an a b test it allows you to get the pricing wrong right in the small market you sell the entire market at you know five thousand bucks a year and you realize that you've just built a five million dollar business and there's nowhere to go (laughs) so um first thing is market size i would say the second thing is the quality of the founding team i would say that i would really um there's a lot of B-school kids out there that don't know how to code and aren't engineers, and they are just convinced that they should be founders of companies, and I would not work for those people. I would work for a technical founder if I could because – and it's not just because they know how to code. It's because they know how to recruit because engineers want to work for people that they can learn from, and if you can't hire great engineers in the modern era, then you can't have a company. Yeah. And so – uh, you have to go to a place. Now, if, it, if there's a non-technical founder that can recruit the best engineers in the world, so be it. But when I look at Google and when I look at Facebook, there's a common thread between some of these companies. Mark Benioff is, is the exception, perhaps. But, um, you know, Larry Page knows is an engineer and Mark Zuckerberg's an engineer. And there's a reason that they get such amazing engineering talent. So the quality of the founding team is next. And then if I'm, you know, we have this concept of, and you're going to love this, Rob, but the Revenue Collective Bill of Rights. And, uh, I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. <laughs> so the first of the rights is the right to due diligence. And, um, the, so the third thing is first the market, then the sort of like the quality of the founding team slash the founder. And then the third thing is, okay, uh, you know, those things check out. If I'm a sales or marketing leader, I want to understand what are the rough unit economics. I want to understand what is the business, what are the business financials telling me about how the, 
how the customers love the product. Now you can say, well, and too many people put the spreadsheets in the CFO camp and they say, I don't know about the spreadsheets, but I've talked to a bunch of customers. And yes, anecdotal and qualitative feedback is important, but the unit economics will tell you something. And the re- there's a reason. It's because lo- good unit economics, meaning you don't spend very much money, but you get lots of customers and they stick around. That tells you, what does it tell you? That the customers are uh, telling their friends, right? That's how do you get a new customer without spending any money on sales or marketing? Well, it's an inbound lead. Well, how did you get that inbound lead if you didn't, you know, if you don't have a website and they just emailed you out of the blue because their friend told them that what you were building was great. Got it. And so I would look for great unit economics. And what you're looking for is I want to be paid back uh, for my sales and marketing investment and new customer acquisition within one sales cycle. If possible, you know, they might say under 12 months payback period. And that's true if you're aggregating on an annual basis. But and if it's a one year sales cycle, then certainly. But, um, you know, I'm trying to make my money back fairly quickly. And if I can make my money back quickly, then that tells me that it's productive use of capital. I like that. That's a really good metric for us to all use. Okay, so I'm going to shift off of new company. My first question was, okay, so is this volatility come with new companies? And you said, yes, the younger, certainly the more volatile. Now I want to look at a different kind of young, okay? Let's shift. Is there a difference in volatility and how long you stay if you're an experienced sales leader or experienced operator versus a newer to the to the job? So it might be a more uh, take the company out of it. Does the length of your your tenure as an experienced operator or head of sales does that matter to what happens where you are? Does it make sense? Some yeah, of course. I think I think of course it matters, uh, but but not for the most obvious reason. The most obvious reason that it matters is because your deal flow is probably better the more experienced you are, so you get to pick better companies. Now. When you get there, you know what you're doing more. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, there's probably an expectation, and it's frankly harder for a 32-year-old founder to fire a 43-year-old person than it is a 28-year-old first-time VP of sales or marketing. Mm. But um, So, yeah, I mean, of course. Exp- I mean, I think experience counts for a tremendous amount. Um, so I, I absolutely think that, like, the more experience, the more you've seen, you're probably going to be more effective. But I don't think it's the number one driver. Uh, Let's take Gerson Lambert. Awesome. Okay. No, that, I'm glad. I knew you'd take this in a place that would open me, open my eyes. I'm really glad you're, you're answering in a complex way. Well, this is awesome. Thank you. Sure. Well, I'm just like, look yeah. at me at Gerson Lambert Group. Look at everybody that was there. The CEO when I was there was Alexander Sandemond. Okay. Alexander's an incredible person. He's an, he's, a, and he understood the customer. Him and Mark Gerson, uh, understood the customers better than, and that is so critical to, to a great company is do you know your customer? intuitively like in your bones but none of us knew what we were doing right we did it i can tell you that now but we knew our customer and we had a great product and we took that and it so i wasn't smarter back then but i built a 60 million dollar run rate business in three years with no help and no experience congrats man that's awesome no, it's, it's, but I'm just saying it wasn't me. I'm saying like, I, you know, it would have been a $40 million business without me, maybe, or a 35 or a 60. You know, I can impact the growth curve 10, 20%. But the fundamental thing that was happening was that the market was sucking the company up into an open area. And, um, so, you know, when you've got, when you're on a rocket ship, all of your ideas work. You know, you, you feel like, if you look at these, uh, early Facebook employees, it's just amazing. Uh, you know, like the guy that founded social cat, they're all, everybody's taking credit for it. Like I was the person that did this. It's like, you worked at Facebook, dude. It was working. 
it was exploding. I appreciate that you think, you know, your little strategic insight was the key to unlocking the entire business. But I can tell you that when you've got lightning in a bottle, a lot of your ideas are going to work because we're all pretty smart people. Right? I'm, sure, I'm sure mom is proud, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we're all smart people. Like I, I'm not, I wasn't dumber when I worked at Axial. That, that's not why we didn't make it to 20 million in ARR. It, I picked a tough market. Like the company was in a very difficult market. And, uh, you know, Warren Buffett has that phrase when a, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm sure I'm not going to get it completely right, but when a market with a reputation for ex, uh, uh, for reputation for mediocrity meets a management team with a reputation for media, for excellence, it is the reputation of the market that is left intact. Mm, the smartest is, people in the that's world. That's a good quote. I like that. Yeah, the smartest people in the world cannot outthink gravity, you know? <laughs> so. All right. So I like this. That's, that's, that makes tons of sense. So I'll, I'll go one level deeper on this one in a similar vein. <clears throat> so let's say that you are a newer, um, a newer sales leader or a newer operator. Any suggestions for, for these people? What are the things you need to be great at? Cause I'm going to go back to what you said. Gotta be great. What yeah. are, what are a couple of the non-negotiables that you would recommend to these people that you gotta be great at to make it so, you know, you're, you're driving your own ship? Well, um, whether it's through Revenue Collective or some other way, you're going to need a support system. That's kind of thing number one, because you're going to need people. You're going to encounter situations you haven't encountered before. And if you don't have any mentors or you don't have any peers that you can, and I'm not talking about like, you know, set up a coffee in two weeks. I'm talking about real time feedback, like on Slack, which is where the Revenue Collective, you know, convenes most of the time as well as in, in person. So first you need a support system because you need to, um, you need to be able to ask for help and ask for insights and say, okay, the CFO is telling me we built, you know, we're supposed to build the comp plan this way. Uh, what do you all think? And then you can get four people telling you, no, 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 we've done it this way before. CFO is wrong. I, you know, I'll connect them to my head of finance if that helps. So one thing is a support system. Second big mistake I see lots of VPs of sales make. There's a couple early VPs. One of them is not asking for enough resources. So, um, why do you think that is? Why do you think they don't ask for enough? Do they just trying to be Superman or is it, yeah, they don't, they don't know what, what do you, what do you think the reason for that is? They're scared, uh, to look, to look weak. You know, there's, they just sold themselves into a job and they think that the point of that job is that, you know, they know how to do everything and they don't ask for enough sales ops support and they don't ask for enough sales training. They, you know, that's a huge thing that, you know, you don't put any money into your training budget because that you're, you're afraid that the CEO will say, well, I thought you were doing the training. I said, no, well, I need support, right? It takes the, the, the thing that founders don't understand and maybe even early VPs, you're not, you're not just, when you hire a VP, you're not hiring a, a single person. You're making an investment in a function because the VP needs resources to succeed. So, uh, and, and asking for those resources can be uncomfortable and awkward. And so that's kind of like the second thing. But then the third thing is directly related to that which is that you ask for the wrong resources and you don't understand how demand is generated. And what I mean by that is you come in, right? And uh, again, this is like classic thing. If you've got three or four reps or five reps or 10, whatever, you've had, you've killed it. You've had a great, you know, you, you made it through 3 million in ARR and you were selling $6,000 deals. And man, you, they, they were gobbling those up like hotcakes. And now you're on a, now you got to double again or triple and you just raise a massive round. And now there's a VC in there that actually understands SaaS a little bit. And, but they understand it in the framework of like a headcount driven revenue model. And so they say, uh, you need to, you know, you need to hire. You've had five reps. Let's hire 20 reps because we really need to grow quick. And so 
The biggest second mistake is you ask for the resources, but you put them all into, you put them all into sales headcount and you don't put any into marketing or demand generation. And so what happens is you hire all these salespeople, but you haven't, you haven't increased the amount of uh, meeting opportunity, right? You haven't shown that you can generate pipeline. You've shown that you can close business with your existing pipeline. So you add 20 new salespeople. None of them have any meetings, right? Their calendars are all empty. You say, oh, well, you know, you start yelling at people that they're not prospecting enough, but you never invested in marketing or demand generation functions. And so now all of a sudden it looks like you're the person that uh, built a shitty culture because you've got 20 people with nothing to do all day and they're leaving at 4.30 and, um, and you're not sure why. And the reason why is because hiring salespeople is the least efficient way to build pipeline most of the time. Yes, we need reps to prospect as a function of being a great rep, but, you know, I still think Marketing should contribute 60, 80, you know, and when I say marketing, I'm including SDRs. Your demand generation function should, should contribute, in my opinion, 60, 80% of pipeline, not 20%. You know, it's not that the reps should be filling 80%. I mean, because you got to teach them how to prospect, you got to teach them how to do all these things. You, you need operational infrastructure to, to create the lists that are necessary so that they know who to call and when to call and when the ICP is. And a lot of that is done by sales ops and by marketing. It's not done by the sales team. So the third thing is you ask for plenty of resources, but you put them all into hiring a bunch of people and you've never shown that you know how to get a meeting or build pipeline. And then those people stop hitting quota. The culture sucks. Everybody starts, starts complaining about the company. You have to fire everybody. Then you're fired. That's a great one. I, I'm really glad you went there, Sam. I don't know that I would have thought of that one. And I appreciate you sharing it because <clears throat> I've had a lot of people pose questions like it's like, would you rather, you know, the, you know, the old would you rather game, right? Yeah. Would, would, would you rather have, the world's greatest sales team with, you know, basically very little market demand or an average sales team with the world's greatest market demand. Yeah, of course. The answer I mean, is, yeah, it's an easy one, right? You, you want, you know, uh, there's this like inverse, the better the salesperson on a specific type of product, the more skeptical I am of the quality of the product because you want, you want to, you want to, you want a company that can tolerate shitty salespeople and still grow massively. That tells you something about market demand. Um, even That's though we well know. said. That is, <laughs> I'm sorry that interrupted you. That is that is a really really good point, Sam. I like that. Yeah. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, the last thing I'll say, uh, I make so many great points. You know, I'm just a genius. Um, Go for it, brother. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I I try to be like sort of uh, superficially uh, pretentious and self-important, but really I'm trying to be self-deprecating. But some people take it the wrong way. <laughs> I don't well, I love think it. it's working with me. So keep it up. My shit stinks just like everybody, but <laughs> I will say exactly to your point, Rob, a sales, a, a mediocre salesperson with lots of meetings can make money for you. And, a, and an incredible salesperson with no meetings will get fired. And so it's all about the market and market demand and demand generation. And if we have that, we can, we have, you know, then we can implement Netic and then we can do the right entry and exit criteria into Salesforce. And then our sales kickoff, we can get, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell to speak and everything will work great. But that's because we have demand. <laughs> All right. So we're, I can't, you know, it, it always goes so fast. I got to start like going into wrap up mode because there's a few things that I like Understood. to ask everyone that I want to ask you. You've, you've shared a great uh, blueprint for what to do right. And, and uh, you've also shared some killer things, mistakes to, to avoid. Uh, I, I think that our listeners are really fortunate. I've got pay, uh, like a couple pages of notes here from our conversation already. Um, as you look at it, what would you say as a way of summarizing? 
What would you say the number one or two things to get right are, and then the number one or two things to avoid? And it may be stuff you've already said, but I like to get it into summary format to make sure that people got it clear. Any top two things to get right and top two things don't ever do that, but that's up top of mind for you? Sure. I mean, the top, like I mentioned, just to your point about summarizing, the top thing to get right is to pick a great company. Uh, however, the second thing to get right is to understand what are the requirements. And I'm talking now about a VP of sales, about a, a VP of marketing, a senior executive. The second thing to get right is to understand that your first team is to the executive team, not to the people that you represent. And second, and then also that uh, being a VP of sales really means you're head of recruiting and talent acquisition. Like you, what you need to be able to do, you don't need to be able to know how to do everything. You need to be able to convince talented people that you can help guide their career and that they should place their trust in you because you will take them to where they want to go in their career. That is what the job of an executive truly is. I love that. I love that. So, and then the, what are the things to get wrong? The things to get wrong are don't ask for enough resources and, uh, you know, and then be a bad steward of capital. Ask for the resources, but, but invest them poorly. I guess the final thing I will say, my final point of advice and caution, and this comes from deeply personal experience. So again, I'm not perfect. In fact, I'm telling you, I've gotten fired for these reasons, which is that um, <laughs> your job as a head of revenue, as a commercial operator, what do you think it is? You think it is to hit the number. And I am telling you, it is not. It is not to hit the number. Your first job is to not create work for your CEO. It is to, it is to create equilibrium and harmony between the executive team. The more fights you get in with your head of marketing and your head of finance, the more work you create for your CEO. Now you may think that the only thing that's important and everybody else can go f themselves. I hit the number and f you. And that's not how it works. <laughs> Is that why I got in trouble so many times? I mean, that's why I got in trouble because nobody liked me. <laughs> Except for the people that work for me. And like, that's not enough. No wonder I like you so much, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to make the people that work alongside you. You got to be able to exert influence without having people be your direct reports. And, uh, and that means you got to be able to solve problems without invoking the referee or mom and dad every time. Yeah. Those are killer. So, I, I thank you for summarizing and you even added a couple of things there. That was so good. What a great uh, couple of, of, of pointers for everybody on our show. Okay. My questions that I ask everyone, number one, biggest sales leadership challenge that you see and, and how do you, you know, what's a way of facing that down? I think the biggest sales leadership challenge that I see is, uh, is, is sales executives not knowing how to manage expectations properly across the organization. And so um, that's, Learning how to do that is really, really important. You know, learning how to work with the finance department to have a revenue target that is, uh, that is not so stretched that you can, that it has no chance of, of being achieved. Learning how to work with your team and your reps so that their expectations are managed so that when you get a great outcome, everybody feels like it's a great outcome. That's a really big leadership challenge uh, hmm. that I see. How do you beat it? How do you do that? I mean, that, that's probably easy to say, hard to do, right? Yeah. I mean, the way that you beat it is, so much of how you succeed in a job is how you negotiate before entering the job. That is my, that is my insight. Once you're there, you lose a lot of leverage and you, you, there's no, you know, you don't have options because people don't, it's not that much fun to look for a new job all the time. So yeah. the best way you do it is by setting the table and setting expectations before you enter with everybody as clearly as possible. So there's a whole podcast. I'm going to have you back on in a few months. We're going to do one just on that. I, I, I think that that's an interesting conversation too, but we are for sure done. Last question that I ask everyone. I can't wait to hear yours. Uh, I'm really excited to hear what, what your thoughts here. 
we found that the great leaders are never done learning. They continue to try to stretch themselves and, and improve what they're doing. And, and as a result, leaders are readers. And I don't care if it's books or audibles or podcasts or, 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 or in blogs. Uh, what do you think that great leaders ought to make sure that's in their library and things that they started to implement? So I'll give you a couple. Yep. Um, there's business books and there's, uh, I, I really think reading uh, historical, like reading history is, is really helpful for business because history is all about people making decisions with imperfect information, which is what all decisions are. Yep. So anyway, uh, when it comes to business books, I really like this book, First Break All the Rules, which is about how to lead, how to manage. It's a great um, one. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, and then there's, uh, I just read The Challenger Customer, uh, which is the sequel to The Challenger Sale. I think yep. that if you're in a sort of like a seven-figure B2B enterprise sales cycle, it's critical reading. It just, it clarifies all of your frustrations and why, you know, getting to the economic buyer is just not sufficient and why there's a lot more work that needs to be done if you're going to drive a, you know, a million dollar deal home. And then there's a couple of books that just about how the brain works, which I think are interesting. So Thinking Fast and Slow, which is a book by Danny Kahneman, uh, this book Influence, which a bunch of people have read by Robert Cialdini. And then, um, uh, the Undoing Project, which is by Michael Lewis about Danny Kahneman and about a bunch of other, uh, you know, behavioral psychologists and, uh, and economists and, uh, sort of walking through the history of some of their work, which is really groundbreaking. So those are those books. And awesome. then, you know, I'm obsessed with World War II, the Civil War. So those I read, I've read five different biographies of Grant at this point, but you know, he's my man. He's my so man. So cool. <laughs> Sam, we're so glad to have you on. What a, what a treat having you. Your insight is fantastic and you got this unique lens. <clears throat> Big fan of what you're doing. Uh, so to all of our, our listeners, you know, check out Revenue Collective. Uh, if you're not listening to the Sales Hacker podcast, go subscribe, go give those great reviews. Again, I give you kudos. You've, you've created a great, a great show there, Sam. And thanks for what you're doing for the sales profession. I'm, I'm a big fan of what you're doing and we need more guys like you and what we're doing. So thank you very much and thanks for joining us. Rob, thanks so much for having me. If anybody out there wants to reach out or wants to learn more about Revenue yep. Collective, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm at linkedin.com forward slash the word in and then forward slash Sam F. Jacobs. If you want to email me directly, you can. It's sam.jacobs at nycrevenue.net. And, yeah, hit them up, follow them. You share a lot of great stuff, and, and uh, we want to make sure that everybody gets as much uh, Sam and as much Revenue Collective <laughs> as possible, man. Happy selling. All right. Thanks for having me. Hey everyone, welcome to another So What portion of the Sales Leadership Podcast where we break down that interview and we ask ourselves, why did that conversation even matter? And I was really excited to have Sam Jacobs on. I, I, I uh, really respect his work and what he's done. Big fan of the Sales Hacker Podcast and would encourage all of you to, to subscribe to that if you're not already. And, and I love the depth that he brought. He's been an operator uh, in a lot of great companies. He, he knows what he's talking about. He gets to talk to sales leaders everywhere around the world. And if I was to sum up kind of what I took from, from Sam in one sentence or just a couple of words, here's what I'd say. No happy accidents. No happy ac accidents. You know, I, I love the premise of the Revenue Collective is that sales leaders are in the most volatile position in business. You know, the VP of sales in 2010, average tenure was about 26 months, 24 months, somewhere in there. Today, the research that I just most recently saw is that it's down to 17 months. And it's continuing to fall. Uh, a year ago, it was 19 months. And, and what it means is as sales leaders were allowed to have one bad year, but not two. And, and, and so what Sam's whole premise is, 
is, yes, as sales leaders, there are absolutely things that we need to do and do well. In fact, the words that he used was, we must be great. Okay, That's what we aspire to be. That's what we sign up for when we take the job of leading a team rather than hitting a number as a quota carrier. We must be great. And, and there's tons of things that we have to do to do that. In fact, we've, we've identified many of them on this podcast. If you go back to our greatest hits uh, and you look at the new ebooks that we've just released, uh, the five building blocks of, of high-growth teams, some of those things that we must be great at developing are culture, vision, systems, coaching, and, and how we engage as an executive. But there are other things that we can't do much about. We cannot do much about it. Um, that we also have to be great at picking those from the get-go. And, and one of the things that I wish that I had more time, in fact, I want to probably have Sam back on, I would love to have de- dove deeper into just one or two of those areas and gone really, really deep on, on more of them because I got the impression that if I was to ask Sam the question, if you can't guess this one right or if you find that you guessed wrong, is that reason to leave a company? I would guess that he would say yes. Um, you know, I, I, I think that those things were big. You know, the most important one he said is picking the right company. We've got to get good at picking the right company. And I love how he said that the first thing that makes it is it the right company. It's as simple as what's the market size. And if we don't have a large and growing market, all the salesmanship in the world is not going to solve that problem. In fact, you have a, a ridiculously short runway. You don't have enough runway to figure things out. And I should probably, you know, point out that all of these things, Sam's going to lean through the lens of technology and mostly startups because that's what he's passionate about and that's where the most volatility is. But all of his laws and all of these rules apply for every kind of sales org. Okay, I don't care if you're in financial institutions or manufacturing or whatever it is. This applies for big companies as well as new companies. And so that was a really important one. Make sure that you are getting great at that. There's lots of people I see get chewed up and spit out as companies are trying to figure things out, and those early leaders become casualties. And I think that's why the second one that that really stood out to me with Sam is so important. He called it picking great founders and leaders. I'm going to really say it's it's more than just founders. Again, he looks at the startup world and the tech world, and, and quite often the founders run it for a long time. I don't care if it's a big company or a small company, a mature company or a startup. The quality of the leaders that you're working with and for have to be a consideration. You need to get good at figuring out how to uh, identify what those look like. I-, I would say there's two things. Again, Sam talked about technical uh, founders for some reasons that I thought were really good. I would, I would add, he talked about this, and I think this one speaks to me even more. How connected are those leaders to the market? How well do they know? Like I, I could say in, 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 for instance, our industry, we sell to sales leaders. And as someone who has been a sales leader for a long time and I've led a billion-dollar company and, and led a team with a 1,000 reps, it's made it easier for us to, A, connect with our customers and, B, understand how to service the market. I've seen that happen many others. Uh, you know, Steve Richard is another one with what he's done at ExecVision. He, he connects to those leaders so well. And so I – I find that that's an area that we could do a better job of is how connected are the leaders to the market and maybe more than that, what's their integrity like? One of my very favorite sales leaders left what I thought was a great company because he found that his ability to be authentic and, and, be, and, and keep his integrity in place was challenged. And rather than try and stay there, he left. And I think that's a good example to all of us 
that if we find that the leaders that we're working with have integrity problems, uh, there are many, many other problems that come with that. So all of those are important. Some of the other ones that jumped out around understanding unit economics, particularly around CAC and, and demand, I thought those were really insightful. But the final thing that I really want to talk about on this was he, he pointed it out, and this is the thing that I would have another episode with him on just on this. As a sales leader, it's super important for us to have mentors and a support system. And how you develop those mentors and that support system should be something that we're always working on. I've been in this game for over 20 years, and one of my most important members of my support system and a new mentor for me has really become a strong relationship in the last 12 months. It's not the one early that uh, got me through some of my early challenges. I've added new mentors. I've added new support system. And I'm actively working on that. And there's really important reasons why. I love what Sam said. You're going to be asked to do things that you haven't done. You're going to be asked to, to pivot. You're going to be asked to adapt and change. And if the only thing you have to draw on is your base of experience, you will be limited. And so creating that network, in fact, my personal definition of network and networking is building relationships you can count on before you need them. I would advise you to do that. Again, a resource for that is our new leadership book that we just released. If you haven't downloaded it, go download it. There's 25 of the world's greatest uh, sales thought leaders and, and practicing sales leaders right now in there. Most of those are people that will be happy to connect with you. I'm not going to tell you they'll sign up to be your mentor, but here's how it works. If you start developing relationships with people that are help, based on genuinely wanting to help each other out, they will. I can tell you Robert Cornell that's in that book. He has helped me when I needed playbook help. Doug Landis, he continues to be a go-to resource for me. Uh, all of the people that we continue to try to introduce you to, take advantage of the opportunity, connect with them on LinkedIn, uh, get a hold of what they're, re what they're thinking about, and find ways to start building that network out. Because I have found that no matter what stage of your career you are, having the right mentors and support system will absolutely stimulate your growth. So that's a long so what on a killer episode. I want to say thanks to Sam Jacobs. I, I love the man. Uh, since interviewing him, I've gotten to meet him at the Outreach Unleashed conference, got to hang out with him for a little bit. Uh, just a genuine fan of what he does. Make him part of your network. Reach out to him. Learn about the Revenue Collective. Uh, listen to the Sales Hacker podcast as well as uh, the Sales Leadership podcast. Give us both five-star ratings, right? And as always, don't worry. Just execute because we got you. Thanks for joining us for the Sales Leadership Podcast, your weekly pipeline to the most successful thought leaders and rainmakers in sales. Make sure to check out additional episodes at salesleadershippodcast.com. The Sales Leadership Podcast is produced by Brian Jepson and is sponsored by Exploit, the modern sales leadership platform for Salesforce.com users. You can visit Exvoyant at exvoyant.com.